Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hey, Ashley. Yeah, Sierra? Uh, do you know what time it is? Um, I think it's 9.40. I mean, yeah, it is 9.40, but it's actually time for your weekly dose of Wicked. But um, Ready for me to blow your mind? <laughs> Ready for my mind to be blown. All right. So welcome to part two of the Heidi Allen disappearance. All right. So last week, just to recap, we covered Heidi Allen's disappearance as well as the arrest and conviction of Gary Thibodeau. So in this episode, I'm going to cover the ulterior suspects. Um, I know that you knew a lot about Heidi Allen, but you don't really know a lot about like these other theories, right? No, not really at all. Okay, perfect. I'm going to cover some... There's like two main ones that have a lot of information on them. And then there's a couple smaller theories that don't really have a ton of information, but I still think they're worth mentioning. Before we do get started, though, there's a few things that like don't really fit anywhere that I want to include. One of them is just a little fun fact. In an essay for school, Heidi wrote that the reason why she was so open and outgoing is because as a child, her parents took her to nudist camps. And while she was fully clothed, she was constantly surrounded by nude adults. So I just thought that was worth mentioning. Kind of weird. Super weird. Right. I don't know why that was an acceptable thing to do. Um, Anyway, another thing that I want to mention is the police focus really heavily during their investigation on the fact that Heidi was not scheduled to work the morning that she disappeared. Uh, She had switched shifts with a coworker last minute. And that was one of the main reasons why they said that Gary Thibodeau didn't have a motive was because it was a crime of convenience and that he didn't actually care who he was kidnapping and killing. So Jennifer Rutten is Heidi's coworker. She's the one that they swap shifts. She came forward and said that she didn't understand why the police kept pushing, that no one knew about the shift swap. She said it was actually Heidi's idea that Heidi wanted to switch shifts with her so that she could go to Brett's for Easter dinner. She said that they had planned it well in advance and that it was common knowledge with pretty much all of the customers. Like everyone knew Heidi was working that morning. They all had told Jennifer Rutten to enjoy her Easter Sunday morning because they knew she wasn't going to be there. That's just kind of important because the police kept saying that nobody knew, but everyone knew. Okay, so let's just jump right into it. I'm going to start off with our less likely options. I really want you to take these lightly because I don't know if we, you know, get sued for this, but um, there's really not a lot of information on these ones. I just feel like they were worth mentioning because there is like just little tidbits of information on them. There is factual mentions in articles and whatever. There's also an entire, I think, I don't know if it's a Twitter page or a Reddit thread, but like there's a whole dedicated group of people who just spit out theories of what happened to Heidi Allen. Some of them obviously make more sense than others, but like these ones to me make sense. And I was able to actually find articles that backed them up to an extent. You know what I mean? Put anything in here that I couldn't find a published article about. Right. And they're not our theories. They're just other people's theories. No, they're not. Right. They're not our theories. So just to specify that in case anyone decides they want to sue us, I don't necessarily believe these theories. They were theories that were spit out by other people. And I was able to find mentions of them in published works. So I feel like they're safe to mention. Okay. So the first one is Matt Duell. Matt Duell was the husband of Christine Duell, and they were the owners of the DW convenience store. So I was able to find statements from Brett. Heidi's boyfriend, as well as from another guy, Michael Bohr. He's going to come up later. Keep that in mind. But in these statements, essentially, there are some accusations about a relationship between Heidi and Matt. 
Some claim that there may have been an affair and others say that it was a non-consensual relationship. Nonetheless, regardless of which side of that you fall on, how pretty much how it goes is that Heidi threatened to come forward. And so Matt being her boss and knowing that she was going to be working that day, killed her to keep her quiet. At that point, he was able to dispose of her remains at the dual sawmill. Let's chat about that. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's definitely possible. Possible, but also kind of sounds like... You know, small town rumors. I agree. I also think, though, that my thoughts on that are if he took her to a sawmill and chopped her up, there would be a ton of evidence. Definitely. A lot of blood, I'm sure. There would be blood everywhere. As far as, like, evidence at the DNW, there's not going to be evidence there because he owns the DNW. Like, right, his DNA is going to be everywhere. Right. I just, yeah, I mean, the sawmill would be a bloody freaking mess if he chopped her up there. Do we know if the cops ever went to the sawmill? No. Um, I actually have that in my notes. That, I mean, it's definitely possible, but I couldn't actually find anything about the sheriff's department actually looking into Matt. He very well could have taken her to a sawmill and chopped her up and they never checked. He was never like a person of interest. I couldn't really find a full list, like everybody they included as a person of interest. But I mean, pretty much from the beginning, they just assumed it was Richard and Gary Thibodeau. They named them as like their lead suspects 11 days into the case. Right. They definitely questioned other people, but I didn't find an intensive list of suspects at all. Right, because they didn't really have any. Just brothers Thibodeau. So moving on from that theory, the next, you know, lesser theory here is that the sheriff's department had her killed. Mm -hmm. I think that's a valid thought. They definitely dropped the ball in the investigation, which could have been intentional because they killed her. They refused to let the state police take over. They never set up roadblocks. Another thing that you know I intentionally left out from the first episode is the fact that Heidi was a confidential informant for the Sioux County Sheriff's Department. So the reason why I left that out is because it just didn't really pertain to the Thibodeau brothers. Since drugs wasn't their motive, there was really no reason to bring that up, but it does come up a lot in these ulterior theories. We know that Gary did drugs, but the prosecution never implied that drugs were his motive, obviously, like I just said. Okay, so essentially what happened is in 1992, Heidi's babysitting for her cousin Missy, and she decided to go to a party. She decided to bring Missy's one-year-old daughter with her. Uh, She then left the baby in the car while she was partying it up. And then when the cops were called, they found the baby in the car and Heidi was facing child neglect charges. Heidi's uncle, Roger Sturtz, was a judge. He was able to pull some strings and he got her into this program called PINS. P-I-N-S, which stands for People in Need of Supervision. So essentially, Heidi became a confidential informant. She was 15. She was to inform the Oswego County Sheriff's Department on the matter of drugs within the county. So to me, that sounds illegal. I mean, I would think so at 15. Yeah, I would think that 15-year-olds shouldn't be uh, being confidential informants on drugs, but you know, whatever. But it's also the 90s, so I mean, rules are a little less lax, a little more lax. Yeah, a little more <laughs> lax. <laughs> Okay, so the theory with the Oswego County Sheriff's Department is that Heidi was collecting information because she was a confidential informant and that she had gotten to a point where she knew too much and that there were just too many officers involved in keeping the drug ring alive and thriving. So they killed her. I mean, it makes, you know, I mean, it's it's possible. Right. Possible, but is there really proof that there's that much corruption? I mean, obviously, I wasn't able to find a news article that was like, these officers are selling drugs in Oswego County. Well, yeah. (laughs) But I mean, small town. It's definitely, I mean, it's definitely possible. But the issue that I have with the theory is, as you also know, that in 1992, so shortly after she became a confidential informant, her CI card was dropped in the parking lot of the DNW convenience store. It was found by Christine Duell and her mother, Bobby Wells, and they immediately turned it into the Oswego County Sheriff's Department. So as I, you know, we've discussed in the past, I don't know why her confidential informant card was out in public where it could just be dropped. I don't know why it wasn't filed at the Sheriff's Department. Right, part of that is that the card is never supposed to leave the sheriff's department, correct? Right, the the card was not supposed to leave. So I'm not really sure why it was out and about lollygagging around town to be dropped, but whatever. Um, But essentially what happened is the card was dropped and the card contained all of her information. I mean, it had her address, her name, her code name. Her code name was Julia Roberts because at the time, Pretty Woman was a big, was a big thing. So that was her code name. Of course, everyone loved Julia Roberts. Right. But anyway, so at this point, it was 1992. She'd become a confidential informant in 1992. So she hadn't been doing it for very long. uh, And she'd really only helped them with like a few small marijuana deals. So when they dropped her card, they decided that her identity had been compromised. So they actually took her out of the confidential informant program and they didn't use her anymore. In 1994, they decided that it had been enough time since they, you know, 
exposed her identity to the world. They came to her and asked her if she would be willing to do some confidential informing for a cocaine bust. I'm not really sure how two years is enough time to determine she's no longer compromised. I mean, I agree, especially in upstate New York. So at this time, they come to her, officer comes to her and asks her if she'll, you know, do the cocaine bust. And Heidi told multiple people that she did not want to do it. She was afraid. She had never been involved in cocaine. My thought process with that, though, like why I went into all of that is because I could see the sheriff's department killing her off if she'd been collecting information on them for two, two and a half years consistently. But she wasn't. Like she'd only been a confidential informant for a few months and then they'd taken her off the cases. So she wasn't consistently collecting evidence. You know what I mean? If there were corrupt cops, I could see her getting a lot of information in two and a half years. I can't foresee her getting a lot of information in the short time that she did it and then being asked to do another one, not even doing it. I don't know. That Like, that's what doesn't make sense to me. Right. And like, I feel like the cops are pretty like a close knit community. So it would take more time for her, for them to gain trust and let her really in to get a lot of information on them more than just a couple months. So the issue is the officer who was in charge of her confidential informant status, he really wasn't very secretive at all. He was actually pretty loose-lipped. He dropped her card in the parking lot, no big deal. He also went around to all of the local bars and was bragging about like this hot young confidential informant he had named Heidi Young. Oh, good. So I feel like he probably would have let her straight in. Stand up, dude. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying, though. As a whole, I don't think that the entire sheriff's department would let her in. But like that dude, he was pretty, uh, pretty braggy. It makes sense. All right. So Gary's defense was uh, never actually made aware that Heidi Allen was a a CI. They also never knew that her CI card was ever dropped. Um, Also, they never told Heidi that her CI card was dropped. That's some bullshit. Yeah. It was just kept hush-hush. They didn't tell anybody. I mean, essentially, Christine Duels knew. Bobby Wells knew because they were the two that found it. They immediately turned it into the Oswego County Sheriff's Department. I was able to find that um, information, like the police report where... Christine Duels turned it in. But yeah, they never told Heidi that her card was missing. And they also never made Gary's defense aware that she was even a CI to begin with or that her card had been dropped. I feel like they definitely should have known that, been made aware of that. I agree. Those are the two smaller theories that I have. This isn't really a theory, but I just think to me, it's absolutely insane that Heidi's boyfriend, Brett, was never investigated. Right. That's always like the first person you go to is like the spouse. I mean, I know they weren't married, but like still. The significant other. No, but I mean, the significant other. Yes. Like in most cases, like that's the first person you'd question. So they questioned him like lightly in the beginning, but he was never heavily investigated at all. Um, Multiple witnesses said that he was super controlling. Uh, He himself in a police interview said that if him and Heidi were apart for more than 25 minutes, he would call her. Well, he did go to the convenience store every morning to make sure she was working. Right. Yes. Uh, Well, no, he went there to make sure she was safe, Ashley. He didn't go there to make sure she was working. Oh, whatever. He also said in an interview, I don't really think I covered this in the first episode, but he had said in an interview that Heidi was interested in him for quite some time before he finally agreed to take her on a date. What a gentleman. Yeah, what a gentleman. But he told her that if she wanted to go on a date with him, she had to quit smoking. She had to quit hanging out with those people. Referring to the drug scene that she was involved in. And even the day that she disappeared, Christine Duels said that Brett was at the DNW that morning and that he was being controlling as usual. Those were her words, that he was controlling. It would make sense. Question him as a suspect. Right. I mean, no, I agree. In Lisa Peebles' book, she talked about how at trial, Brett was the picture-perfect grieving boyfriend. But in the months following Heidi's disappearance, there are recorded phone conversations. So, I mean, I guess police looked into him at some point because they tapped his phone. But... In his conversations with his friends, he was annoyed with the investigators and he was like bothered by the fact like he was inconvenienced and he said he thought that his phone was possibly tapped and that the police thought he might have something to do with it. Also, I already mentioned in the first episode, but he was 25 and she was 18. (laughs) A little creepy. And at that point, he was a longtime boyfriend, as we stated in the other episode. So who knows how long they've been dating. But to me, that's I mean, it's a creepy age gap. Right, because I mean, like, long time. That's more than, like, a year, most likely. Right, I would agree. I mean, I would think... So what? She was 15 and he was 22? That's disgusting. So anyway, not necessarily a theory. I just think that, um... I just thought there'd be more information on him. Yeah, I definitely think rightfully so. You always look at the significant other. I agree, but that was really just an unnecessary rant. <laughs> Keep that in there, edit it out, I don't know. But I, it just annoyed me that there should have been more on him. All right, now let's get into the heavy stuff. We're going to talk about some real, actual ulterior suspects here. So there's really two main ones that I want to focus on. All right. So first, 
I think that, I don't know that either of these, I don't know how to word this. I don't know that either of these situations even have enough evidence on themselves to make an arrest. But I do think that both of these theories put in enough reasonable doubt that Gary Thibodeau should have gotten an appeal. Okay. I want to go back to the FBI. Remember the FBI was called in. They called in that super cool profiler. That super cool profiler said, our guy's going to be obsessed with the case. He's going to insert himself any way he can. He'll have a past record of similar crimes which Gary and Richard did not meet that profile at all. So they also called in this other super cool FBI dude. This guy was an internationally known forensic examiner, and he specialized in being able to know if people are telling the truth. He's like a human lie detector. So he uses like, yes, essentially, yes. He can tell if someone is telling the truth based off of like their body language, based off of a whole bunch of other factors. I don't really know how it works because I'm not a human lie detector. But anyway... You're not? Not even a little bit. Could have fooled me. I know, right? Because I'm such a good judge of character. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how he does it, but he's an expert and he works for the freaking FBI. So, I mean, he must be, you know, legit. I don't think they'd bring in someone that they wouldn't bring in like a freaking fortune teller. Okay. So the FBI examiner, his name is Dr. Marie Myron. I don't know if that does anything for you, but felt like he needed that name. No, nothing at all, but I like it. (laughs) He gave the Oswego County Sheriff's Department a file on this kid named Brent Moore. Brent is the son of Deborah Moore and Richard Minton. Uh, Brent told his mom that he had seen Heidi alive on Easter after 7.42 a.m. He was with his dad, and he saw his dad and three other men, one of which was a police officer, shoot Heidi in the head, and then they put her body in a garage slash shed. It wasn't really specified, but it said garage slash shed, and then they lit it on fire and burned her body. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so this kid knows where the shed is. He was able to pick Heidi out of a lineup of pictures. He knew her name. Like, he knew that's Heidi. He had seen her before. Um, He said that Heidi had come to his house on Christmas and given his dad money. So, spoiler alert, uh, Richard Mitten was dealing drugs. So, Heidi had come to his house to buy drugs, given him money. Um, And this little boy, Brent, was also able to tell the FBI examiner guy what kind of car Heidi drove. Little boy, how old was he? Oh, we're getting there. Okay. So we're getting there. You're jumping ahead a little bit. Hold on. <laughs> per usual. So he was able to tell the FBI examiner that Heidi drove a long reddish car, which we know she drove a red station wagon. So a long reddish car. Um. So this kid, Brent, he talks to the FBI examiner. The examiner writes two letters stating that Brent Moore, in his professional expert opinion, is telling the truth. He's showing all the signs of PTSD. Uh, he is drawing pictures. And the pictures depict exactly what he says he saw. Not only did his mother come forward, but also his preschool teacher came forward because he was also telling his preschool teacher about it. So how old was he? He was three and a half. Crazy. So, I mean, he had no reason to just make that up. Exactly. He had absolutely no reason to be like, oh yeah, my dad shot Heidi Allen in the head with his friends and burn her body. Like he's three and a half years old. He shouldn't even know that Heidi Allen was murdered. Right. I have a three and a half year old. I don't go three and a half year old child. Let me tell you about this. A girl who was just murdered. No, like you don't tell three and a half year olds about people getting murdered. And even if he had seen it on the news, I don't know how he would come up with a story of my dad and three of his friends, one of which was a police officer, shot her in the head and then burned her body. And I know exactly where the burnt shed is. Oh, and by the way, there's actually remains of a burnt shed where I told you it was. Well, and the three and a half year old is watching the news. Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So to me, I mean, this checks out pretty, pretty well uh so brent's mom's deborah she also told the police that richard told her that three guys took heidi and that they were never gonna find her body so did they investigate the shed uh yeah but you're jumping ahead again sorry (laughs) you're all about jumping ahead it's fine well get to the point i have a lot more to cover before we get to the shed so in 1994 they did an interview with richard's sister again we're talking about richard mitten maybe i should call him mitten yeah this is a new richard though not richard thibodeau richard mitten so in 1994 they did an interview with richard mitten's sister Kim, and she said that she asked Richard about it and that he gave her the name of a drug dealer that he and Heidi would buy drugs from. So of all of the officers, it seemed that one officer did take this lead somewhat seriously. He drew up a web, and in this web, there was a corrupt corrections officer. And he was known for his involvement with Richard Minton and this drug circle that Richard Minton was a part of. So that easily could have been confused by Brent Moore for a police officer, corrections officer. Right. He's a three and a half year old. Right. Like a man with a gun in a uniform. He very easily could have thought that this corrections officer was a police officer. Right. In this web, this officer pretty much connected Richard to that confidential informant card. So Richard Mitten, at the time of Heidi's disappearance, is dating Jamie Kuhn. 
Jamie Kuhn lives with Richard Mitten, and she is the daughter of Joyce Kuhn. Joyce Kuhn works at the DNW with Heidi, and she's also the sister of Bobby Wells, which is Kristen Duell's mother, owner of the DNW. And I don't know if you remember this or not, but the only people who knew about the CI card being dropped was Christine Duell and her mother, Bobby Wells. Right. So to me, that web makes sense. Like Bobby Wells finds this confidential informant card with her daughter, Christine. And then she's like, hey, yo, sister Joyce, guess what we found? Because sisters tell each other everything. I mean, you know this. Right. No secrets. If I found a confidential informant card, I'd be like, yo, Ashley, guess what I just found? <laughs> like, this is some crazy stuff. So anyway, I mean, it makes very, very much sense to me that Bobby Wells would tell her sister, Joyce Kuhn, about the confidential informant card. And then it makes sense to me that Joyce Kuhn would then tell her daughter, Jamie Kuhn. Yeah. And then Jamie Kuhn is dating Richard Mitten, who's dealing drugs to Heidi Allen. And she's like, hey, yo, boyfriend, you might want to watch your back because you're uh, dealing drugs to a confidential informant. Right, because she wants to look out for her boyfriend. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, that to me, all of that makes sense. So the police claim that they investigated this lead. They did attempt to search the property where Brent claims that he saw Heidi killed. But the owners immediately lawyered up and refused to let them search. Who were the owners of the land? <laughs> Why do you always have to jump ahead? That's my next bullet. <laughs> I just know where you're going. It's that telepathy. <laughs> okay. The owners lawyered up. They refused to let them search. What blows my mind about that, though, is that, like, the police just dropped it. Like, they didn't even, they could have gotten a search warrant. Right. They had probable cause, or, you, I mean, you know, like, the FBI's telling them, this kid. I feel like the FBI should just have, like, all authority over everything. They should just be able to search wherever they want. At this point, I feel like they should be like, you know what? You guys are sucking at this case. We're taking it. I agree. But they didn't. Okay. So, who owns the property? Well, the property was owned by the Barlows. Does that name do anything for you? No. Of course it doesn't because you have no memory. Um, Gary and Richard's sister, Joanne, is married to Jack Barlow. Okay. So the property is owned by the Barlows. No, it didn't specifically say it was Jack Barlow's house. So it could have been John Barlow. Either way, it was somebody related to Gary and Richard Thibodeau, which to me is a little sketchy. Yeah, maybe a little. It brings Gary and Richard back into it. But that's pretty much it, though. They just, like, drop that. They don't do any more investigating into it. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. So in 2015... I don't remember if it was Dateline, NBC, or there was another one I watched that was like local news. I don't know. The links will be in the show notes because I linked them. I like saved links, but whatever. There were two documentary, mini documentaries that I watched on this. Uh, so in one of them, they actually interviewed Richard, Richard Mitten in 2015. So at this point, it has been what, 20, 20 years, 30 years? It's been 30 years, right? No. Oh, she went missing in 94? 94. No, it's almost been 30 years. 18? Yeah, she went missing in 94. 20, so it's been... Yeah, so in 2005, or 2015, I mean, it's been 21 years. We're really not good at numbers. <laughs> no, we're not. Okay, so 21 years at this point. <laughs> um, they do an interview with Richard Mitten, and he is shocked to find out that his son ever even went to the police. He didn't even have a clue that the FBI questioned his three-and-a-half-year-old. How do you not know? Because the police never questioned him. The police never talked to Richard Mitten in 1994 when Heidi went missing. Right, but he said that... They talked to the three and a half year old. It's his son. Deborah and Richard weren't together. So Deborah brought him in and never told him. Oh, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. So he had no idea. He had no idea that his three and a half year old son had told the police that he killed Heidi Allen. Um, he was shocked to find this out. He didn't even know that his son had talked to an FBI expert. He also claimed that he never did drugs. So he doesn't even know where that came from. I'm just going to tell you, he definitely did drugs. Okay. <laughs> it's not me passing judgment. I mean, maybe a little, but like. He looks like he's done a lot of drugs. <laughs> I'm not passing judgment, but... I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm not passing judgment, but, I mean, he looks like he's been doing some hardcore drugs. Um. Anyway, whatever. The police never questioned him. They also had this information from the very beginning. And do you want to know what they did with it? Filed it away and ignored it. They, they hid it. They hid the information. They hid this from the defense. So on this file, there's a handwritten note. It's signed by that fun guy, Donald Dodd, you know, the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. And the handwritten note literally says, do not copy for, and it's got a little triangle. Do you know what a triangle stands for? Yes, but I can't think of the word. <laughs> okay. So triangle is the Greek letter for delta, 
which is the letter D. So in lawyer shorthand, a triangle is the symbol used for defense. I looked all of that up because I thought you would ask me what the triangle stood Well, I was thinking change, you know, like in math. Oh, no. <laughs> no. And I was like, that doesn't make sense. No, it's the Greek letter for delta. And in lawyer talk, it stands for defense. So essentially, this handwritten note said, do not copy for the defense. Which is illegal. Yes, it's 100% illegal. You can't hide things from the defense. No, you cannot hide. Is it, what's it called? Barry? Uh, I have it in my notes somewhere. <laughs> I was looking for it. Brady. It's called Brady material. I've never heard that. It's literally like four, four lines down. Yeah, it's called Brady material. They asked Donald Dodd in that interview about this handwritten note, and he has no recollection of the note. Of course not. He does say it's his handwriting, but he assures them that every file was copied for the defense. Even though his note said don't copy it. Everything was copied. But he didn't write that. No, he did write that. He says it's his handwriting. He just doesn't remember writing it. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, of course it makes sense, Ashley. Like, why would he hide that information from the defense? I think that that file enough, though. I, I, I feel like that file is enough that Gary should have been given another trial or given an appeal. I feel like all of the things the defense didn't know should be enough. I agree. So they did multiple appeals and said that the defense withheld Brady material. Um, and then here I've got a little note. Brady material is essentially any evidence that would help the defense would help the defendant essentially. That doesn't really make sense, but I drank a little when I wrote this. So, you know. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, pretty much any evidence that would help the defendant. The prosecution claims to this day that they have no idea why the note's on the file and they gave the defense all of the files. But none of Gary's lawyers through his entire journey of prison have ever seen this file. And he had multiple lawyers. Right? Right. He had many lawyers from 1994 until 2015. So it's not just like one of them missed. Right. It's not just like one of like them. Skipped it. Right. Not, not like. Didn't see it. Right. It's not like one of them overlooked it. That's the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not like somebody overlooked it. Like he literally had at least three, three that I found statements from, if not more, but at least three lawyers who never saw this file. Right. And it's not very likely that three people overlooked the exact same thing right and it happens to have a note on it that says do not copy for defense crazy so yeah i mean i personally think that that theory makes i mean it sounds pretty credible to me i can't believe that the police never questioned mitten right right no they never questioned him and they didn't even bother to try and get a search warrant for this apparent shed slash garage that was burned to the ground with Heidi's remains in it so i remember you know i have horrible memory that I don't know, five years ago, 10 years ago, something like that, that there was like a cabin that they were looking at. Mm -hmm. Is this the shed? Nope. It wasn't actually a cabin? No. Okay. Jumping ahead on you again. The cabin is part of the next theory. Okay. Sorry. But no, there is a cabin. You're right. I mean, that did that did happen. Okay. But that's okay. You, you're good at jumping ahead. So no problems. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, do you think that that is pretty... I mean, it sounds pretty sound. I agree. I mean, to me, it sounds very possible. But, like, we're never going to know because they didn't properly investigate it. Right. And in 2015, when they questioned him again, did they find anything? Or did he give them any more information? They didn't question him again. This was a freaking journalist. Oh. This wasn't even the police questioning him in 2015. It was a freaking journalist. That's what I'm saying. They never questioned him. That's crazy. There's no record of them ever questioning him whatsoever. I'm pretty sure that the Richard Mitten information was in that local... It was, like, a local news documentary that i watched uh i'm trying to think of who published it it wasn't because there was a dateline episode but there was another episode and it was like local like oswego county news or like syracuse or something i gotta see if i can find it uh, i think it was i think it was this link right here okay so yeah it was nbc3 which is like their local news so they just like found this information and went and talked to him on their own yeah, they found the file. They, like, requested the file. Or they requested, like, all of the Gary Thibodeau files. And they found this file. They're the ones that found the file. So they gave the file to the news. But they didn't give it to the defense lawyers. Yeah, Ashley, that's what you do. I mean, don't you know? No, that's not what you do. <laughs> so I know that this wouldn't have actually happened. But I did actually look into requesting the files myself. Because mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to see if they would, like, give me the file. They said no. But... I didn't. It was a really long process, and I didn't really feel like doing all that. So there was a lot of hoops to jump through. But apparently, pretty much anyone can request these files. I mean, it's probably all, like, public, right? Yeah, public. You have to, like, pay, like, every page. I don't know. There was a lot of hoops to jump through. I looked into it because I was like, man, I wonder if they'd give me the file. 
You should. I mean, we're basically detectives. I kind of want to find this file. Yeah, I know. But dad told me, like, I, I don't remember exactly what he said, but he's like, I mean, what do you think you are? You think, like, you're going to solve this case? It's been unsolved for 30 years. You think you're solving it? It's like, I mean, maybe. He doesn't give us enough credit. No, he doesn't. But I actually, I looked into the, I looked into Jane, the Jane Doe network and I was looking for um Jane Doe's in the match ID's description, but I did find a couple, but I don't think they're her. Like I found a couple that could possibly be her, but I don't think they're. Okay. Anyway, let's get on to our final theory here. Okay. So this theory involves three men. Their names are Roger Breckenridge, Michael Bohr, and James Thumperstein. Thumper rings a bell. Thumper rings a bell. Yeah. Because he's, it's, I mean, yeah. Thumper is a very, you know, <laughs> non-common name. So you'll remember earlier that uh, Michael Bohr made a statement to police about Matt Duell. I mentioned him and I clicked. Um, so he actually published his own investigation into Heidi's disappearance. His investigation starts with, these are the facts, as investigated by me, as facts. So it must be true. Of course. Has to be. They're facts. <laughs> Has to be true. Yeah. So Michael Bohr was a known drug dealer at the time of Heidi's disappearance. In 1994... Michael Bohr, Roger Breckenridge, and James Thumperstein all worked at the local scrapyard for Richard Murtaugh. I don't know at the time of Heidi's disappearance that they were questioned at all. But in 2015, Tanya Priest contacted the Oswego County Sheriff's Department about a conversation that she had had with James Thumperstein in 2004. So she claims that the local news was airing a special on the 10-year anniversary of Heidi's disappearance and that she was at her friend Vicky's house. The two women were discussing how crazy the case was, and Thumper, who was Vicky's boyfriend at the time, chimed in and asked if they wanted to know what really happened to Heidi. So he claims that he, along with Breckenridge and Bohr, kidnapped Heidi from the DNW gas station. He said that Bohr sat in the van while Roger Breckenridge went into the front door to distract Heidi, and then he went through the side door and he grabbed Heidi from behind and carried her out of the gas station and put her in Roger Breckenridge's van. Now hold on. So you'll remember... Oh, go ahead. Go no, ahead. I was jumping ahead. You go ahead. What you got? I don't even remember now. Go ahead. Were you going to discuss maybe the bear hug? Yeah, and the two guys. Yeah. From Chris. That's where I was going next. So Christopher. Or awkwardness. <laughs> no. So my next thing was, do you want to know what color Roger's van was? White. It was light blue, which was the first color. Oh, right. And then it changed to white. Yeah. And then it changed to white. So Roger Breckenridge's van was light blue. Did it have a stripe? Uh it did not have a stripe, but okay. remember, originally, it didn't have a stripe. It only had a stripe once it was white, and then it had a blue stripe. So initially, our friend Christopher Bivens, um, he initially said two men were carrying Heidi out of the gas station in a bear hug. Right. So this checks out with Thumper's story. In another statement, Brett Law had said that Heidi was very friendly, and he could see that in order for someone to kidnap her, because of her height, because she's 5'11", I mean, I don't know. A lot of them really focused on the fact that she was 5'11", and it would be difficult to carry her out. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, you're 5'11", you're pretty tall. Okay. Do you think that people can carry me around, like, willy-nilly? I mean, like, your husband, who's your height or taller, can. Yeah, he carries me around like a sack of potatoes. But, like, my husband... Who is not as tall as you can't. Right. Which I think is important because he's the same height as Gary and Richard. And he could not carry around willy-nilly. Exactly. But your husband, who's taller, could. Right. So my husband is not as tall as me, but he's only like an inch shorter than me. Well, whatever. You're the same height. No, we're not. When he wears his cowboy boots, he's the same height. Yes. When he, when he wears his cowboy boots, we're the same height. But when he wears his heels. Okay, so when he wears his heels, he has no problem throwing me over his shoulder and, I mean, really throwing me around. Like, he could very easily pick me up and there was that one time he was going to throw me in the lake. Yes, I remember. And, I mean, it's a bit of a struggle, but, like, he had no issue doing it. I feel like he quite regularly picks you up and carries you around. Yes, he does. Because you hate it and he thinks it's funny. Yes, he very regularly picks me up and puts me down. I pick things up and put things down. Um, <laughs> he... Yeah. So anyway, they really focus on the fact that she was 5'11", though, and that nobody could carry <laughs> that nobody could carry her around, which I just was like, I'm 5'11", and Jacob carries me around. Maybe a short dude couldn't, like the Tippetoe brothers. Right. Maybe a short dude couldn't, but a man in his heels definitely could. So I don't know. Anyway, Brett said his thought process was because of her height, that in order for somebody to carry her out or, you know, get her out, they would have had to have distracted her and maybe come around the side of the counter and grabbed her. Which is what they said they did. Right. 
So like this also checks out with what Brett said must have happened because he said Heidi was very friendly. She was very trusting. So she would have no issue with somebody coming around the counter to talk to her. She didn't listen to enough true crime. Okay. So anyway, no, obviously was true crime even a thing in 1994? (laughs) It should have been. I don't know. I mean, it should have been, but was it? Probably not. Probably not. I feel like everything we're like, that's not okay because it was the 90s. That didn't happen. It was the 90s. I mean, I mean, I don't know that true crime was a thing in the 90s. When did America's Most Wanted come out? Definitely sometime in the 90s, don't you think? I don't know. I should know that because I know about the case that started America's Most Wanted. What was it? Uh, America's Most Wanted. Oh, yeah. 1988. Yeah, I was going to say the 80s, but I didn't want to sound stupid. No, I mean, yeah, it was 1988. So, yeah, she definitely should have been watching America's Most Wanted every single night and being prepared to be kidnapped. But what was the case that started America's Most Wanted? Um, You don't know that? No. So, America's Most Wanted is hosted by, what's his name? Do you know his name? John Walsh. Oh, it was like his... His son was kidnapped and murdered. From a grocery store or something, right? Yeah, I think it was a a department store. A department store. Okay, just kidding. I knew that. I figured you did. Disregard. I figured you did. I just got a slow brain sometimes. Yeah, I thought that was very weird you didn't know that. Okay, so anyway. Away from Americans Most Wanted. Okay, so. Not important. Thumper's story backs up with the original statement from Christopher Christopher Bevins. If he would have stuck to his story and not changed it 75 times, maybe it would have helped the investigation a little. Right. So, I lost my place now. Uh, okay, so, whatever. They snatch her from the gas station. They carry her in the van in a bear hug. Do, 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 do. They put her in the van. His van is light blue. Then what happens? Oh, yeah. Uh, Michael Moore is driving away. There were multiple witnesses who said that a light blue van was driving erratically. So, again, would make sense. Um, so, from there, according to Thumper's story... They went to Roger's girlfriend's house, where they then killed Heidi and then carried her body to an abandoned cabin in the woods. There's the cabin. There's your cabin. Once they got to the cabin in the woods, they attempted to burn her body, but they underestimated how hot a fire has to be in order to cremate someone. Right. So they were not able to cremate her. Once they realized that their plan was dumb and it wasn't going to work, they ended up taking her remains. And they went inside of this abandoned cabin. They ripped up the floorboards. They put her body in the floor. And then they put the floorboards back down. So her body was underneath the floorboards in this abandoned cabin in the woods. So Tanya recalls in 2004, she told Thumper he was full of shit. And this enraged Thumper. He went off and told her that if she didn't believe him, then she could talk to Jennifer Westcott. Because that was Roger Breckenridge's girlfriend at the time, which is the house that they took Heidi to. So Tanya recalls being terrified by this encounter, which is why she never came forward until 2015. So 11 years after the conversation took place is when she finally came forward. Why did she finally come forward in 2015? Because of the... Have any guesses? Investigation by the news. No, that is not why. Um, she That was a good guess, but no, that is not why. She came forward in 2015. No, she was still terrified of Thumper. But um, Thumper ended up marrying his girlfriend, Vicky. Mm-hmm. Which, to me, is kind of crazy. Vicky homegirl heard him admit to killing somebody, and she still married him. Well, they thought he was crazy. I mean, whatever. Thumper ends up marrying Vicky. Um, and in 2015, he's arrested and charged with two counts of murder. So he discovered that his wife, Vicky, was having an affair with his cousin. So being the reasonable man that he is, he instead of just leaving her. Well, right. Instead of just leaving her, he shot Vicky and her lover, a.k.a. his cousin, at point-blank range with a shotgun in their apartment. The only logical thing to do. Yeah, it's the only thing. I mean, it's the only thing you can do if you find your wife cheating on you with your cousin. Like, that's freaking crazy. Like, that's a whole new level. I'm, I'm crazy, but that's a whole new level of crazy. Okay, so when the police arrived to arrest Thumper, he was wearing a shirt, and his shirt said, it's all fun and games until the cops show up. How ironic. <laughs> I thought that was funny. Okay, so now that Thumper's behind bars, and he didn't try and hide the fact that he killed Vicky at all, he actually called Vicky's father and told her, like, he shot her. At least he's an honest killer. I mean, is he though? I don't know. He's honest about ones that he can't deny because he did it in his apartment with a shotgun at Point Blank Range. So with Thumper finally behind bars, Tanya, priest, finally felt safe enough to tell the Oswego County Sheriff's Department about this awkward encounter with Thumper all those years ago. So the Oswego County Sheriff's Department flies Tanya back to Oswego because at this point she'd left the state. And after talking with her in person, they decided that they were going to investigate this lead, which is shocking. They investigated this one. Um, the plan was for them to talk to Jennifer the next morning, which is... Roger Breckenridge's girlfriend. So they want to bring Jennifer Westcott in in person and talk to her. But Tanya couldn't wait. So instead of following their plan, she went back to her hotel and she called Jennifer and recorded their conversation. So Jennifer Westcott told Tanya that the three men had brought Heidi to her house that day. 
but they left her in the van and that she had not seen her. Like they didn't bring her into her house. Uh, Tanya asked Jennifer why she never went to the police. And Jennifer said that it wasn't her job to do the detective's work. A piece of crap. Yeah. So she says that she doesn't know what happened to her from there. She was in the van and that's the last time she saw her. She has no idea what happened. So the next day they bring Jennifer in for questioning and Jennifer denies having that conversation with Tanya. And the detective's like, uh, yeah, homie, she recorded the entire conversation. So you can't deny it. And so then Jennifer says, well, she just told her what she wanted to hear so she'd leave her alone because she wouldn't stop questioning her. That makes sense. When people question me, I lie too. Yeah, me too. It's my favorite thing to do. They let her go that day. And then they end up bringing her in for a second interview. And during the second interview, she gets emotional. She does recall that Roger Breckenridge and his wife, Tracy, scrapped a van shortly after Heidi's disappearance. So I don't know if you remember this or not, but we're talking to Roger Breckenridge's girlfriend. And she's saying that Roger and his wife scrapped the van. So there's just a lot of infidelity in this case. (laughs) Right? The Sheriff's Department actually did take a statement from Roger's wife, Tracy, in 1994. Tracy Breckenridge came to the police and told them that Roger had scrapped his light blue van. And when she asked him why, because there was absolutely nothing wrong with it, he said that there was evidence in it. And she was like, what What are you talking about? And he said that there was blood in the back. So he had to scrap the van. So she came to police in 1994 and told him that. And they didn't investigate that either? I mean, clearly not much investigation took place on that. <laughs> okay. Tracy ended up leaving Roger shortly after Heidi's abduction. She did speak with the police again in 2015, and she stuck by her statement that Roger scrapped that van back in 1994. Uh, now, investigators talked to Richard Murch on 2015 about the van. There's a lot of Richards in this case. Well, stop calling him Richard. Just call him by their last name. I mean, that's fine, but I'm just saying there's a lot of Richards. And that one's Richard Mitten, Richard, Mur- Richard Murtaugh, Richard Mitten, like very close. Anyway, whatever. So Richard Murtaugh said that he did recall the van that Roger Breckenridge had scrapped. And he said that when Roger Breckenridge scrapped the van, that there was a large roll of carpet in the back, but he didn't think that it would be big enough to like hold the body in it. So his employee, who also worked at the scrapyard in 1994, Refused to talk to police until she consulted her attorney. But when she got the go-ahead from her attorney, she let the police know that she did remember scrapping the van and that she also remembered the large roll of carpet in the back. But she did not think that there was a body in it. But no one looked at it, so no one knows. Yeah. The police then question Thumper. You know, this is in 2015 now. So they questioned Thumper, and Thumper told them that Breckenridge and Borg kidnapped Heidi and killed her, but that he was not involved. Uh, the police then question Roger Breckenridge, who in 2015 is in prison for larceny. He had stolen uh, antique tractors and served time, uh, but then he was arrested after his release because he failed to pay back the restitution for the tractors. Roger Breckenridge also denied all involvement in Heidi's disappearance. Lastly, the police questioned Michael Bohr. Bohr only agreed to an interview if they would meet in a public place, so he met them at Maple View Family Restaurant. I just added that because it was my favorite restaurant. He said that he does not want any involvement and he's just trying to live a normal life. But they talked to him during his investigation or during his questioning, I should say. um, He told the police that they should have stuck with Christopher Bivens' first statement because it probably would have got them much farther, which to me is weird. Um, He also said that he knew it would only be a matter of time before they wanted to talk to him again. Again, weird. So you'll remember that FBI profiler. Mm-hmm. Your favorite dude? Yeah, my favorite dude. He had said that whoever kidnapped Heidi was going to be obsessed with her. He was going to insert himself into the investigation and he was going to have a past history of similar crimes. Okay. So Michael Bohr inserted himself into the investigation. He went to police numerous times with leads. He did his own investigation on the case. Uh, he also was obsessed with the case. He had boxes and boxes of newspaper articles, like clippings. Anytime anybody reported on Heidi Allen's disappearance, he saved it. Creepy. So Lisa Peebles actually looked into his background and she found a woman named Catherine Schmidt. And Catherine Schmidt is a woman that Michael Bohr attempted to kidnap. And he had later pled guilty to unlawful imprisonment. So this dude matches the profile. Right, 100%. Like the closest of anybody else involved in the case. And of the three men, he's the only one who's not in prison. Um, But there was also an instance where... Heidi's cousin, Missy, you know, the one she babysat for, got herself in this whole CI mess for, or I mean, not for, it was, she was babysitting for Missy when she got in trouble and had to become a CI. So Missy had bought Heidi a bracelet for her high school graduation, because remember, she graduated shortly before that. Right. And the bracelet said, like, Heidi, it was a gold bracelet and engraved on the top, it said Heidi. And then underneath, it said, like, with love, Missy, something to that extent. Okay. So Missy, one night, is at the bar with a friend of hers. And she is talking about this bracelet. 
and how she wonders like if Heidi was wearing the bracelet when she went missing, whatever. It just came up in conversation. And at this point, it had been years since Heidi went missing. So shortly after that, the bracelet was mailed to Missy and Michael Bohr was sitting at the bar that night. Creepy. He's a creepy dude. He's super freaking creepy. <laughs> He's super creepy. Uh, but she did not take it to the Oswego County Sheriff's Department. Why not? Because she did not want to upset her family. So the issue with this case is most of Heidi's family believes that Gary did it. Which makes no sense. Right. I mean, pretty much all of them think that Gary and Richard did it. Like her parents, her aunts. I mean, everyone. Missy does not. But she didn't want to upset her family by like bringing this information to the police because it was just going to reopen like a can of worms. So she didn't ever take it to the police. But Lisa Peebles in her book covers it. She saw the bracelet. Uh, she did an interview with Missy. Missy said she would not testify because she did not want to like open this up. Right, because her family just wants closure. Yeah, I mean, they do want closure, but I just feel like they should want closure for the right person. Oh, definitely. I'm not giving them excuse, but... Right. I just think it's crazy to me that they just all can be like, oh, Gary did it. Okay, case closed. Like, I'm sorry, but if somebody kills you, I'm not just going to be like, oh, well, the mailman was there when she died, so it must have been him. You know, I mean, it just blows my mind that they don't even want to attempt to figure out who actually did it. Yeah, I don't get that, but... I mean, it's pretty It's pretty clear that it wasn't Gary. So at the end of Lisa's book, she covers her theory of what she thinks happened. So her theory is that the three men killed Heidi, you know, like, like Thumper said, and they put her body in the cabin. When Oswego County started to, like, really hone in on trying to find her, they got nervous, and so they moved her body. While Richard was in jail, uh, Richard Murtaugh and Roger Breckenridge went to Richard Thibodeau's house and they stole a broken down van out of his backyard. So he had like another van in his backyard that didn't run and they stole it while he was in prison. And they've admitted to this and they really have no good reason as to why they did it. It's fun to steal vans. Okay, they have like no good reason as to why they did it. And then they claim that they scrapped it in Canada. So they stole his van and then took it to Canada and scrapped it. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. So Lisa's theory is that these three men took Heidi, hit her in the cabin, Oswego County Sheriff's Department started to get close to him. They got nervous. They stole this van from Richard Thibodeau's yard. They put Heidi's body into this stolen van. And then they took her body to Canada and scrapped it. And that's why they've never found the body. Is this the van that had the big roll of carpet in it? Or a different van? No, this is a different van. This is a different van. Okay. So they scrapped two vans. There's a lot of a lot of vans. Yeah, they scrapped two vans. They scrapped Roger Breckenridge's van at Richard Murtaugh's scrapyard in Fulton, New York. And then they scrapped Richard Thibodeau's van in Canada. Who knew this many people drove vans? I mean, I drive a van, so. Okay, you drive a minivan. I knew. These are like... (laughs) Big box vans. Box creeper vans. Yeah. I used to drive one of those, too. (laughs) I forgot about that. Yeah, so... I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I'm still um, stuck on the kid seeing her get shot. You want to know what I think? What do you think? I think maybe they're both connected. Maybe. They're all into drugs. I think they're connected because that kid Brent said that he saw her get shot by his dad and three friends. Right. Three people. Roger Thumper. Yeah. I think they're connected. Maybe. I think both of them probably pan out. He also said that he saw them light her body on fire, which is what these three said they did. Right. And it didn't work. Or what Thumper said. Right. It didn't work. I don't know. So a spokesperson for the FBI um, had said that he did not feel that the Oswego County Sheriff's Department had enough evidence to convict on any of their suspects. They didn't. Well, they might have had enough on the other people if they would have actually done their jobs. Right. Well, he said that if it had been on a federal level, it never would have went to trial. There was not enough evidence. He was not confident that there was going to be a conviction. But he said that he thought that they were really just feeling the pressure from such a small town to convict someone. And that's why they honed in on Gary Thibodeau and Richard Thibodeau and Gary Thibodeau. Nobody liked him. So he was an easy target. Nobody liked him. So convict him of murder. Yeah, he was an easy target. But yeah, I mean, essentially, that's really where the case ends. I mean, there's not really anything else. So is the case still technically open or is it closed? They closed the case. Why would they leave it open? Gary went to jail. He served his time 23 years and he died in prison. Well, I don't know. They did some investigating in 2015. So I don't know if that meant they reopened the case. They did reopen the case and then they closed it again because they decided that none of this... They didn't find anything. None of this panned out. So they decided that no, but... I mean, my thing is, is like I said, I don't know that any of these theories have enough information to convict someone else, but I feel like there's enough evidence that Gary Thibodeau did not do. I mean, I don't think he did either, but... I mean, I think there's enough evidence that he didn't do it. I don't see how any... Like, I don't understand how he could not have gotten an appeal. I don't understand how the entire state of New York thought that he was, did not deserve an appeal with, like, all of this evidence. Because I meant it went it went to local 
appellate court. It went to the New York State Supreme Court. And like none of these people would give him an appeal. They all said that there was substantial evidence against him. Which it's circumstantial at best. Right. And this new evidence, I mean, you have an FBI professional telling you that this three and a half year old kid saw his dad kill Heidi Allen. And that information was hidden from the defense. Like that alone should have been enough to give him an appeal. I mean, if I'm on that jury, I 100% would have changed my mind if they told me that the FBI didn't think he did it. Yeah, but did they tell the jury that? No, but that's what I'm saying. That's what this file said. But they're saying that the file wasn't important enough. It wouldn't have changed the jury's mind. It would have. Without a shadow of a doubt, it would have changed the jury's mind that the FBI was like, oh, hey, yeah, by the way, we definitely 100% think this kid's telling the truth. I would, it would have changed my mind, 100%. Well, you didn't think he did it in the first place. So it wouldn't have changed your mind. No, I definitely, I wouldn't have convicted him in the first place. But if by some poor judgment I decided to, it would definitely change my mind if they said the FBI thought differently. It just blows my mind that Gary got convicted and Richard didn't. Like, that should be enough right there to get him an appeal. I mean, I, the whole thing blows my freaking mind, man. Honestly, I don't know. I think the whole thing is crazy. Definitely. Crazy case. It is crazy. Oh, you ready to do your case? Oh, yeah. All research done. Are you? <laughs> yeah, I think you're full of crap. I bought a notebook and I printed some articles. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you bought a notebook. I'll get there. Don't worry. Okay, well, you better get there because I'm tired of carrying the weight of this team on my back. You're going to need to quit doing that. Quit flipping me off on the camera. Mm-hmm. You think it's discreet, like people won't know, but I'm going to call you out on it every single time. All right, well, that's the end. So... I guess we will see you next week for your weekly, weekly dose, dose of, of wicked. wicked. You think we got that on time there? <laughs> no, we didn't. It's fine. I can put it back together. And now a word from our sponsors. Just kidding. We don't have any sponsors because we're poor. We already say that in our thing, don't we? No, we added that ourselves. Did we? I don't think we did. If you like what you heard and want to support a small podcast, please give us money at www.patreon.com forward slash weekly dose of wicked where you can sign up for one of our three amazing tiers for the low low price of five dollars you can become a member of the moderately wicked our next tier for seven dollars is the awesomely wicked and finally for the high rollers at ten dollars a month you can be extraordinarily wicked each tier has its own perks so go ahead and take a look there and if you like what you see then give us some money feel free to give us a follow on instagram at weekly underscore dose underscore of underscore wicked or you can just search weekly dose of wicked and it literally pops up because we're the only ones for a direct feed of our podcast please go to www.weeklydoseofwicked.buzzsprout.com currently our podcast is available on the only places that will take us which is only apple Podcasts and spotify for the time being and that's also the only places we know where to upload to make sure to come back next wednesday for your weekly, weekly dose, dose of wicked, wicked. but i <laughs> Thank you.